0: The scripture for today's sermon is 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8. The word of God speaks to us. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then... This is God's word to us.
1: Good morning, church. You doing okay today? I'm doing good. Thank you for asking. Thank you for asking. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you guys, or you meet me, my name is Chad Kintzer. I serve as one of our pastors in our downtown congregation. I serve as teaching pastor there. If you're new to Frontline, we are one church uh, scattered across the city in five congregations, and so one of the blessings and benefits of being a network of congregations is that we get to serve one another, and occasionally uh, I get to visit other congregations and open God's Word. So the privilege to stand today in alignment with the elders of your congregation, the pastors here, to open God's Word is a joy of mine. So if you've got a Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, We'll be in the passage that was just read, 1 to 8. And... uh, it's always fun to sort of be a guest elder, if I can say it that way, and come and to preach on lawsuits in the church. Uh, that's exactly what you wanted me to come and talk about today, I know. Um, but nonetheless, this passage is really, is really helpful and beautiful. It will teach, I think, practical matters in the church, but it'll also sort of rise up our minds and our affections to some things eternally um, that will form us today. So I am, although a bit of a strange passage, I'm really excited to see how it would form us. So uh, I'll sort of jump in. Would you guys please pray for me? I'll pray for you, and uh, we'll see how God would shape us in our time together. Hey, take a second in just the silence of this moment. I don't know how your week has been, or even how you came in this morning. There's an invitation to sort of downshift, to slow down. Maybe just ask God here to help you to hear from Him today. Maybe ask Him, ask Him to meet you in your doubts and in your fears, just that you would know your, His presence. <laughs> And finally, would you please ask God there privately to to help me that what we talk about today would make sense. Our Father, thank you for sacred moments like this. Moments before an open Bible, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts just like the Bible is opened we don't come before your word your word actually is the one thing that comes before us <laughs> and so father today what we what we know not would you teach us <coughs> father where we lack faith today would you help us in our unbelief and where we love not would you spike us up to attention soften us and draw us forward we pray There's a lot of other things we could request, but I trust that you to meet every need here where my prayer would be lacking. And so we offer this prayer in Jesus' name, and together we said, Amen. Amen. Um, Well, over the last few weeks, our elders across all frontline congregations have been talking about a burden that we want to pray into afresh. We want to lean into afresh, something we've talked about for a long time as a church, uh, and that's what, what it is to be a church for the city to what it is to be a church for the good of the city. We've said that for a long time, but it's sort of come up with us in fresh ways to pray into, to think about, and to re-engage. And we don't just simply mean being a church uh, for the city. For Edmund, in this case, uh, that would be a church of activism and of good deeds. We want to do that. Things like Anna's house are so wonderful and beautiful. We want to be about activism and serving those who are in in distress or poor. But what we mean by being a church for the city is that there would be some sort of witness coming forward from us. Both demonstration in our deeds, but proclamation and also the texture of our lives that we live, that there'd be evidence of the power of God that we're not just a people of talk, amen? We're not just a people of talk who say spiritual things, but there's a texture of God's grace that has like collided with us and made us a different kind of people. People who were once fractured in some ways now put back together because of the presence and the grace of God relationships that were maybe once thought far gone are now back together because of the grace and the presence of God. A witness to the city of the power of God, of the kingdom of God, that evidences of God's grace would so prevail on us that that we might be like signposts to the city. That that we might be like signposts to say, if you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, look at us, not because we're awesome, but because hasn't his grace done something awesome among us? That's what we mean. And what's interesting about this burden we've been praying into is maybe more importantly, that's actually the burden of this book, <laughs> the book of 1 Corinthians. And there's a lot of topics that we're going to take up in this book, particularly our passage today and a new topic about lawsuits and conflict in the church. But the burden of all of this that's been written is that the church in Corinth was no longer distinguishable from the world. That's why the burden of being a witness was so important to Paul maybe to say it a different way, that the church in Corinth had been swallowed by the city. They'd been swallowed by the city. So there's a couple of questions that I've been asking myself to process what it means to bear witness in the city, and I'll throw them out to you. Maybe it'll help your process. And the first question is this. Maybe it's a simple question with clear enough answers, but the first question is, what does it mean for the church to be in the city? What does it mean to be the church in Edmund? And again, it's a simple question, maybe with clear enough answers. Well, if I'm the church, if we're the church in Edmond, it means that this is the place where we carry out our discipleship to Jesus, real functionally and geographically. This is the place where you and I will learn to have our lives shaped by Jesus in this community. This is the place where you and I will take up residence and learn to be good neighbors like Jesus would have us to be. This is the place where you and I will fail at times And we'll learn to repent. We'll learn to seek reconciliation and restoration in this city. So, that first question is simple enough with clear enough answers. But the second question is like it only flipped and it starts to kind of get into our responsibility and mission in the city. So, the second question is this What does it mean for Edmund to have the church? What does it mean for Edmund to have the church? So where the first question is primarily concerned with you, the second question is primarily concerned with the city. Of of, of all of God's control, of all of God's sovereignty, of all the places that God in the world could choose to have his message go forward, he's chosen it to go forward at least in this city. What does that mean for this city? What does it mean that God has chosen the people in this city would have access to lots of different churches? Well, it means that this city ought to see something of the life and ministry of Jesus still happening in the world because isn't the church his body? It means that this city ought to see something of Jesus. It means that this city would have a witness of the kingdom of God, what it's like, how it's different than the city that's being built by man, that God is also building a city, that there's an invitation to participate and belong to what God is doing. It ought to also mean that Edmund would know what kind of father God is, And what kind of father he's like because of the family he's building. (laughs) That they would see something of his fatherhood because they see something of his traits bearing witness in his kids. And this city ought to also see that the authority of God doesn't mean oppression as so often thought in our day. That his authority doesn't mean that he shoves us down. His authority actually means that he builds us up, that he brings flourishing in the world. So you could ask these two questions maybe on a personal level. What does it mean for you to be a Christian in your neighborhood? But then what does it mean for your neighborhood that you're a Christian on the block? Does your neighborhood know? Does your neighborhood care? Would anything be less or different in your neighborhood if you were to all of a sudden move? So these questions, I I cue them up today because they get us to the heart, bearing witness, which is the why and the what, of Paul's concern in our passage today. We'll take three turns as we navigate through it. I'll name them, and then we'll get to work. The first is this. There's conflict in the church. Paul's going to unravel the conflict with eternity. He's going to unravel their conflict with the view of eternity. And then finally, he's going to offer up a way of reconciliation. Conflict in the church, unravel it with eternity, and then finally, a way of reconciliation. Let's jump into the first in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And so there's a sober tone uh, to the opening of this passage in verse 1. It carries through from the end of chapter 5. If you were here last week, that chipper passage on church discipline that calls us to be, wa- be on watch and to be active in purging out the sin in our midst That sober tone from chapter five carries into the beginning here of chapter six, and he now begins this chapter with these words, how dare you? How dare you? It's a rebuke. And the context, best we can tell, is that there had been a pattern developing in the church at Corinth where they were taking one another to court over petty issues. And based on what we've covered thus far and learned about this church through five chapters, it's not difficult, it's not rocket science to figure out how they got here. This is a people so captured by pride and prestige that they'd rather be divided over their favorite preachers than have any unity around a crucified Messiah. This is a people so licentious in their manner of life that they wanted to boast about their sexual liberties and boast about their sexual tolerances instead of dealing carefully with the tragic sin in their midst. And now here in this passage, a people so concerned with their legal rights, what belonged to them, winning arguments, that they'd rather be justified in court than have the practice of love and forgiveness with one another. And so the setting, the sort of the moment that they were in is actually quite interesting how this played itself out. In Corinth, litigation was like theater. Litigation was like theater. It was performed as amusement entertainment in their day because it was out in front of everyone. And so there's this adrenaline in their moment of winning an argument, and not just winning an argument, and those of you who like to argue in the room, maybe you know something of this. I like to win arguments, and it's all the better when everyone gets to see. It's all the better when everyone else goes, yeah, and they're right. Well, I knew I was. I'm just glad you saw that also. There's the prize of being vindicated, with all the eyes watching, but there's also a delight of shame brought on the loser. And so in their day, cases would have been heard and judged in the center of the city. Think about Judge Judy setting up live at Mitch Park. So you might grab some lunch, go catch some mitigation, litigation before you head back to the office. There is this thrill in their moment, this adrenaline of watching other, other people's drama play out in front of you for your pleasure. They are the original gangsters of get your popcorn ready. They just love to see it. They love to see it. If it wasn't the thrill of your case being heard, it was the thrill of someone else's drama out in front of you. And you hear that play out, it really does start to sound like an ancient form of what social media has turned into, <laughs> And we'll get to that in a second. But this was the practice of the city. This is what the city was doing. They were outing each other all the time, and they loved having winners and losers. They loved it. But the church was caught up in this fray every bit along with them. And so Paul starts this passage, how dare you? How dare you? And in the, in the, whole, the whole reason he starts that way is because they have the issue of judgment flipped on its head. They've refused at the end of chapter 5 to judge one another, to call out sin in one another with love and grace in order to keep and preserve the church in holiness. They refuse to judge one another, and yet what they're doing is they're handing one another over to be judged by the world. They're giving their problems with one another in the church over to those outside of the church. Would you please handle our problems? That's what they're doing. Pick up with me in verse four. Paul says, so if you have such case, if you have any such case, why do you lay it before those who have no standing in the church? I love the way our reader read it this morning. He says, I say this to your shame. And can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and he does that before unbelievers. Paul gets really spicy in these verses. For all the pride that they've been boasting in, that we've studied through the first four chapters, that they were intellectually wise and they had the wisdom of the world and they were superior, Paul's now saying, are you telling me for all your boasts and wisdom that you can't find anyone wise enough in your congregation to handle these petty disputes? He throws this sarcastic jab at them. Now, to be clear about what these verses are saying and aren't saying, These verses aren't aren't suggesting, as some have taken them to mean, they're not suggesting that Christians should never go to court. That's not saying that. These verses aren't saying that Christians should just learn to handle their matters in house all the time. There are other places in the New Testament where Paul writes about the rightful place of governing authorities. He writes about the rightful place of judicial processes um, to handle uh, restraining evil in the world. And so Paul isn't talking about how we should handle criminal affairs or cases of abuse. Those things not just ought to be reported, they must be reported and handled judicially, to be clear. This is not a passage suggesting that the church should cover up their issues or their laundry in order to not risk their reputation in their city. It's not suggesting church cover-ups, and it's not suggesting silencing those who have been deeply wronged. In verse two, he's going to tell us what this is about. In verse two, he tells that this is about trivial cases between two Christians, petty church fights. In verse three, he's going to elaborate. He says this is about matters pertaining to this life. Another way of translating that is everyday affairs, everyday stuff. So this is about a billing issue with your plumber. This is about a Christian homeowner that's renting their home to a Christian tenant and there's a late payment. This is about a felt lack of care during a hard time from your community group. This is about an item that was stolen or borrowed <laughs> but never returned. is what these things are about. In verse five, he says, can it not be that there's no one wise enough among you to settle a dispute between the brothers? Now, I don't know if you have in mind someday, if you have in mind in here today, someone that you want to take to court. Probably not. Most of us don't just go, you know what, I want to take so and so to court. Like, that's not your everyday. And so you hear about what's happening in Corinth, and you can go, that place is crazy. Church gone wild, that place, right? And in many ways, it is. We don't do the same things they were doing, but that's not because we're all too better. Our systems are just different now. You and I do exactly what they were doing in the form of gossip and social media assaults. We still do this. We, we still do what they were doing, we just do it differently. Because isn't it true that we are happy to blast people, we're happy to blast businesses, we're happy to blast politicians when we don't agree with them and we do so out in front of everybody. At Southwest Airlines, at Delta, at American Airlines, you are awful and then everyone jumps in on the thread, they are awful, they're the worst. I, I hope they blow up. Like, all these kind of things happen, right? I hope they have to, you know, bankruptcy. And it's, it's great to be proven right in front of all eyes watching. But in this way, just like the Corinthians then, what we do is we give one another over to public opinion and let them judge. We do this. And the world, the world loves to see Christians fail. The world loves it. It did then and it still does say the world... Look at these people. (laughs) Look at these people. Look at their arguments against one another. They hear about these things. If they can't keep their stuff together, if they can't get it right, if they can't figure out a way of peace in the world, then who cares about their God? This God of peace. Look at them. They're worse than us in many ways. They're more petty than us. I don't need a God to worship to blast people. I do that quite quite well enough on my own. But here's what's interesting in our moment. It's not just that the world loves to see Christians fail, maybe to speak something in the room. We're in a unique moment where Christians love to see Christians fail. Christians love to see Christians. We are consuming Christian failure just as rampantly as the world. I don't need to name names. You probably see where I'm doing, the math I'm doing. Popular podcasts. Posts. Headlines about fallen Christians and fallen Christian leaders. And we share these things like crazy. Forward them out in email. Share them on social media. Make sure everyone gets to know. We do this in in, in sort of in our minds in an effort to bring justice, to give this person who's fallen and failed what they have coming to them. We do it in an effort to protect other people from experiencing something like this. But here's what's interesting, right? Often the unintended consequence of Christians consuming and sharing Christian failure, just like the world does, is that we get caught up in slander all the same. We get caught up in self-righteous judgment all the same. Well, I would never look at that person. And we start cultivating a spirit where we start to consume that kind of news with excitement and intrigue, but we have no real desire or burden for redemption either of those around us or the person who's in the news. We're just happy to hear the news. We're just acquiring the latest dirt on the latest failed Christian, never mind the people who are actually hurting because of the failure. And so here's what Paul's trying to drive at. When you and I play by the world's rules with gossip and blasting, when we we play by the world's rules just so we can be proven right and win the approval of some, we damage the witness of the church. The world says, if this is the quality of their people, if this is the quality of their community, then does their Savior have any real power to save? What has he saved them from? It looks like like crossfire in there. And if this is their community, is it worth being a part of? We malign people. You realize when we do this, we malign people who in many cases are also Christians, and in that case, they bear the same blood. They're covered by the same blood that it took to cover you. That's crazy. Well, I, you know, that person needed a lot of the blood of Jesus. I just needed a couple of ounces. I'm not as bad as them. The same blood needed to cover you covers them, and yet we malign them. And so Paul could just tell this church, and he is doing so, but he could just tell this church like a parent to a child that's acting crazy, stop it. I don't need to give you reasons right now. You just need to listen to your dad. Stop it. He could do that. And he is telling this church to stop, but he's going to do so in a particular way. He gives us a big why as to we shouldn't do this. Pick up with me in the second move. Pick up in verse, in verse 2. He says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? <laughs> and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try these trivial cases? And do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So why shouldn't you hand one another over to public opinion? Why should we not participate in outrage culture? Not only does it compromise the precious unity of the church, not only does it short-circuit the witness of the church, and we publicly air dirty laundry, and not only because it slanders and destroys people and reputations, which in many cases are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, all those reasons are enough. But the primary reason that we shouldn't hand one another over to outrage culture is because you, church, are going to judge the world and angels. You, Christian, are in the fullness of time going to judge the world and angels. So what Paul's trying to say here, and we'll unpack this, but if this is where we're headed, if this is where you and I are going, then how much more should we be able to peacefully handle the plumbing bill? How much more should we be able to peacefully handle being double-charged for the croissant? And you find out that that was just a single charge. It just cost that much, right? (laughs) How much more should you be able to peacefully handle that hurtful comment made to the side at community group? Two different times in this passage, Paul says... Do you not know that you will judge the world and angels? To which all Christians in the room reply, Actually, no, Paul, I didn't know that. (laughs) That's actually a newsflash to me. And so once once again, Paul is using, what he's doing is he's using our future hope, our future reality in Christ that's fixed. If this is where we're headed, then let's now be shaped by that in the present, and let's get busy with where we're headed on into eternity we don't have to wait to get there. We can start participating now. What's interesting about this passage, some of you are thinking, what does he exactly mean by judging the world in angels? We don't know. The Bible doesn't sort of tease this out as to the particulars of it. Some scholars like to guess here, is this fallen angels? Is this actual people that will judge or world systems that will judge? The Bible's not clear. You can speculate. But what the Bible is clear about is that we will be there on the great day participating with Jesus. We will be there in some way sitting with Jesus, participating with him. And this is so important because many Christians operate with a fear of judgment. But what the Bible says in John chapter 5, Jesus says, if you believe in me, you've passed out of judgment. You've come from death to life. So judgment, Christian, is not yours. Judgment, Christian, has already happened for you. It happened at Calvary's cross, on the head of Christ. So now you get to sit with him, attached to him, united with him, and you'll participate with him. Let's read some verses so that you'll see what I'm saying. Luke 22. Jesus tells the 12 disciples, You are those who stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, just like my father assigned to me, a kingdom, so that you can eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You say, that's interesting. I, I see what you're saying there, but, but that was just to the 12 disciples. Well, then he moves further and pans out to the whole church, the book of Revelation chapter two. To the one who conquers which means keeps my works until the end to so the one who conquers stays faithful as a Christian to the end to him he says i will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with an iron rod and when uh, just as when earthen pots are broken in pieces he says even as i myself have received authority from my father you almost read these verses and you're like, am I reading the, is this actually, am I reading this right? Are these words exactly as I'm reading them to be? He moves on in Revelation chapter three, maybe a bit more clear. To the one who conquers, same language, finishes to the end, I will grant him, listen to this, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. That's that's breathtaking. That we won't just be there bowing low, trembling before the throne. That somehow we'll be doing that and invited to sit up there with him. Like we're supposed to be there. We could keep reading verses like this in the New Testament that are often flown over by us. Romans chapter 8, you can do that on your own time. 2 Timothy chapter 2. But what Paul's trying to do here is if God is able to do the kind of work to get us to sit there with Jesus, then surely he's able to give us whatever we need to handle these cases of dispute here and now in our moment. What Paul is doing in these verses is he's trying to give you and me a wide-angle lens of our hope in Jesus And just how far his blessings flow to those who would look on him. you got to hear this, Christian. The gospel is not just Jesus died for your sins. It is that. He did do that. But the gospel is union with Christ, attachment to Jesus. Do you realize the way the New Testament speaks about the status of a believer is with this constant language of in Christ. That you're in Christ, that you are attached to Jesus just like a body is attached to a head. You are attached to Jesus just like a groom is attached to a bride. So that whatever belongs to him, he has now by his grace and with his authority as the resurrected Lord chosen to share everything that belongs to him with us. This is why Paul can say as he did back in chapter 3, you might remember this from a couple of weeks ago. Quit dividing over these preachers, Paul, Apollos, or Cephas. They're all yours. Not only them, but the world is yours. Life, death, the present, the future, all of it's yours. Why? Because you belong to Christ, and he belongs to God, and he's chosen everything with you. He's chosen to share everything with you because he's the resurrected Lord, and he gets to do whatever he wants. And so he says, come unto me and be united to me. And so the gospel is not just what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. The good news of Jesus is that plus where he's taking us, that he's filled us now by the Holy Spirit, and that he's forming us in the meantime. And so when you see what Paul's trying to help us to do is be more heavenly-minded, when you see the panorama of union with Jesus and everything that comes with it, here's the functional application. It starts to free you from the need to be right. I can actually lose arguments because I've been, and be okay with that because it's not about winning. God has judged me eternally right by what Christ has done for me. When you're united to Jesus, You don't have to look to the systems of the day. You don't have to look to politics to vindicate you as though the systems or politics of the day could actually do that anyways, or they were your hope. When you're united to Jesus, it means that you can take what feels like losses in the the short term. You can actually lose now because you know that nothing can be taken away from you in him. Everything is yours. Christian, you will judge the world one day with Jesus. Jesus you will judge even angels. So this means you can pray for political leaders that you disagree with. This means you can do what Jesus commanded in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies. It frees you up to do that. It frees you to pray for those who persecute you. You can actually be a person of integrity and let your yes be yes, because you know that for all eternity, you will stand before the person of truth for billions of years. So you can get busy now with integrity. So the reason that Paul throws out this big theological bomb is not just to sort of give us a short version of seminary in this moment. He does so because you and I tend to get caught up in worldly affairs so often because we think too little of the gospel. You and I tend to get caught up in so many anxious moments in the world because we think too little of the gospel and we think too little of what it has to actually do with our real life. Jesus is forming you now in the smaller stuff so that you might be prepared to join him and sit with him on the great day. We've got one more move, and I've got to get, get more quick here. <laughs> the final piece is a way of reconciliation. Pick up with me in seven and eight. To have lawsuits at all with one another, he says, is, it's already a loss for you. You're worried about winning. You're already defeated when you do this, he says. So why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But instead, you yourselves are wronging, wrong, or, and you're defrauding. You're becoming the thing <laughs> that you ought not to be, and you're doing this to even your own brothers, he's saying in verse eight. So remember the question we started with this morning. What does it mean for the city to have the church? What does it mean for Edmund to have the church? From all that we've talked about today, one of the things that it means at least Is that Edmund would have a group of people that would show the way of redemption and reconciliation in the world? That's what it means. That's that's what it means. Let me say something quite simple but profound. The way of Jesus and reconciliation, if you want to know how he does it, here's one great step to take he doesn't reply to drama with more drama. The way of reconciliation in the world, the way of handling and absorbing wrongdoing is not to then do wrong again. Not drama for drama. You and me, we live in a world that loves to cancel. And many times cancel culture happens apart from relationship and based on hearsay. Well, this person canceled this person, so I should probably cancel this person. And then it's like group canceling. And what a profound witness would it be in our world? Like literally, you think about a witness of the church to the city, maybe the most profound way we get to be different in this moment of outrage is to actually be a people of redemption and reconciliation. What would it be for a witness in the city instead of just canceling people and doing so with fireworks and gossip and blasting that you actually went to the person that you've got something with. And you did so in a way that would protect their dignity. You did so in a way that would honor them as a person made in the image of God, whether Christian or not. And you just sought to handle with them one-on-one. And what if you actually sought to have a restored relationship? What if you, what if you didn't want to stay mad, <laughs> but wanted to experience what God must experience when he releases people who have wronged him all the time? freedom of release. I want, you to, I want to show you a verse in scripture that Jesus says that you've probably maybe read, but you've bypassed, and you're going to go, wow, he really means this. Luke chapter 17. Jesus says, and I love how he starts it, I want you to pay attention to yourselves. <laughs> As if to say, you won't just drift into what I'm about to say naturally. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and not like pound him, like, hey, let him know. You, you You offended me, you hurt me, you wronged me. You you took from me. Let him know, let him know graciously. Gently rebuke, other, other scriptures in New Testament say. And then if he repents, it says, forgive him. Okay, I get verse three, but he ups the ante in verse four. If he sins against you seven times in the day, okay, that's a lot. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, wow, you must forgive him as much as it felt like, am I reading those verses in Revelation the right way? You now go, am I reading that verse the right way? Yeah, he means it. In Matthew 18, there's an outline to similar process in more detail, even highlighting the need for mediation when we don't know how to get it done between the two of us. You see, in our world, I'm bringing this up because it's just easier to avoid conflict and it's easier to just abandon. It's easier. Like, even in the church, you and me I love frontline, just so long as they don't mess me up, and then it's just next church down the road mentality. This is just one of many churches. I can throw a rock and hit another one. If you offend me, I'll go there, right? But what he's trying to pull us toward is what if we sought to address issues, and what if our first intention was to have a, a witness to the city of grace and reconciliation where our first ambition was to stay? was to stay. I was at Jones Assembly the other night with my wife, and our waiter was blown away that we'd been married for 15 years. He looked at us like, you guys are crazy people. And I'm thinking, in my church, we're junior varsity. (laughs) And we're JV, you know? But the reason what I'm trying to get at here, away from this next church down the road or just next spouse down the road mentality... Is it the reason my waiter thought it was crazy and the reason the world looks at marriages that have been stuck together for 60 years is because you, just, you don't have to ask questions. You just know in those 60 years, there's a lot of wrong that's been done. There's also a lot of forgiveness that's been offered, and there was also the commitment to stay. How did you do it? And you don't even have to connect the dots in some ways. Doesn't that look a lot like Jesus to his church? No wonder it's marvelous. No wonder he tells us that's what it's about. And so I know that whenever I talk about this, some of you are saying, well, you don't know my situation. And the person involved doesn't actually deserve to be forgiven like this text suggests. Are you telling me I should go back into that toxic situation? Are you telling me I should just let people walk all over me? Hey, listen, I'm not saying any of those things. There's some nuance to different situations, but the wisdom given to all of us in Scripture is the testimony of the church. When it feels sticky, where it feels like it's just, it's just not, we're not taking this conflict anywhere, invite in your leaders. Invite in the community. Tap some shoulder. Not to gossip, not to gossip, but to, bri- how do we find a way forward? And maybe there's some help in mediation. Maybe there's some help in navigating conversations. Maybe there's some help with some collective wisdom. I just wonder what it would be if the next time conflict came, or right now if you're in the middle of it, I just wonder what it would be if your, first, if your first move wasn't to obey your impulse, but if your first move was to consider what does Jesus say and what does his way in the world look like. Don't obey your first impulse. Let your first impulse be corrected by the word of God and just... What kind of testimony would that be to you? <laughs> like, what kind? Oh my gosh! Like, God really works in the world. He did in this relationship. He did with me. If it's a testimony to you and me, what kind of testimony would that be to the world? So there's a lot that I don't know about your situation, and there's a lot that I don't know about the details of what's been wronged. But here's the finish today. Here's what I do know. Jesus does not judge flippantly. I'm so glad he doesn't, because I would have been judged in a hurry by now, multiple times. What I do know is that Jesus is the most offended party in the room. And he took on himself a judgment that was not his to bear, but it was actually ours to bear. And anyone who looks to Jesus is united to him in such a way that you will one day judge with him. And many who have wronged us have also received the same grace and they too will sit there with us along with Jesus, judging along with us with Jesus. The people right now that you can't seem to sit by, you'll sit by and you'll sit by with Jesus and you'll be caught up in the same activity. And so if that's where we're headed and if it's his grace that's taking us there and if he's the one who initiated with us and he was the offended party, And if he's the one who treated us with dignity and without slander, if he didn't avoid us or leave us because of wrongs we have done, you see the logic. If all that's true, then by the same grace that made us his, would we seek to be like him? Let's pray together.